Welcome to the SLP Happy Hour Podcast. I'm Sari, an SLP working as an early evaluation specialist in the schools. And I'm Sarah, a private practice SLP. Sari and I live and work in Southern Oregon. It's the spring of 2022, and at the moment we are recording, restrictions and safety guidelines have changed in the state of Oregon with regards to masking. So what are the current guidelines in our respective speech rooms? We'll talk about that, and we'll also talk about one of the biggest challenges we face with learning and implementing AAC. Then we'll wrap up with an update on what we're reading right now. This episode is brought to you by the SLP Happy Hour Teachers Pay Teachers Store. By finding us online on TeachersPayTeachers.com, you'll find resources for Vocalic R, a parent's handout bundle, and tons of resources on childhood apraxia of speech. So find us on TPT or follow the link in the show notes. So this is a sometime segment we do called The Speech Room Of, where we talk about basically, Sari, if you walked into my speech room right now, what would I talk to you about? And for today, it's inconsistent masking guidelines in our state of Oregon. And I think some of our listeners might be able to relate. I want to be very, very clear. This is not about my personal view on masking. We're not going to talk about that. Um, And I'm not going to debate if we should be wearing masks or not. That's not what this is about. It's just about the fact that guidelines here aren't consistent. It's confusing to families. It invites conflict. So specifically between schools and clinics. And so if you don't want to hear this topic, feel free to skip ahead a few minutes. So this episode airs in May 2022, and we are recording at the end of April 2022. So right now in the school setting where hundreds of students have exposure to each other, it's no masks, or rather masks optional, meaning masking by choice but not required. And clinics, where I work, are lumped together with hospitals and require masks, even for one-to-one therapy. This is confusing for parents, and it's arguably a situation, clinic one-on-one, where two people or three if the parent stays, really is inherently less risky than exposure to hundreds of people, and yet masks are still required. So, Sari, you work in the schools. Can you talk a little bit more about when the mask mandate dropped and how it's going? Yes, so you're right. It was mid-March, March March 12th to be exact, that universal masking requirements became an optional decision for public school districts and individual private or charter schools to make. Within our state, even within the small Oregon County where Sarah and I live, different decisions were made in this regard by district leaders. And within the district where I work, masks became optional on March 12th. So students and staff could now choose whether or not to wear a mask, and leadership encouraged everyone to be respectful on one another's decisions. The requirements around contact tracing were also dropped with this change. So it used to be that every time you entered into a building, you needed to sign in and out. That way, if you were exposed to a positive case of COVID, you would be notified or vice versa if you yourself had COVID. However, school healthcare settings continue to need to mask, and I do what I can do to encourage families to still mask when they come in for an evaluation, but I don't force it if they don't. I play it safe myself as far as masking is concerned, regardless, as I am pregnant and I have vulnerable family members. Some families mask, but since March 12th, most don't. 
All other safety pr- procedures, I should note, though, do continue to be followed for things like hand washing, social distancing as much as possible with toddlers, and sanitizing. So all of those types of things are still in place. Yeah, and I think that county piece is really important to mention because if I go to bigger cities within our same state, most people are still masking when they go out and about. But we live in a county where culturally mask wearing is not thought of highly. Most people have very strong opinions against it. People aren't wearing masks, whether it's required or not in general. And again, I've traveled to other areas of Oregon and I've seen so much more mask wearing when I do that, Mm -hmm. but that's not happening here. So enforcing mask wearing is a challenge. And if you try to do it, people get very angry. It's just a deeply held belief for them. So I'm a small clinic. It's me and one other SLP and we see kids and families one-on-one. Or again, sometimes a parent comes in, so two people, but they're in the same family with the same exposure. So I do always mask, um, but sometimes the kid doesn't because they can't. And I have been requiring parents to mask previously. Again, I am not affiliated with a hospital. There are no other healthcare providers here. Yet, technically, at least according to the Oregon guidelines, I am a healthcare provider, so masks need to continue to be worn until they're dropped for hospitals. And I want to be clear that I fully support whatever the rules are, but in this case, it's it's frustrating and confusing and puts a lot of pressure on me to enforce a guideline that is required and yet conflicts with a deeply held cultural belief of many people in my community. So I believe I'm in a lower risk setting than a school because I'm just exposed to a few people at a time. So for me, I am sharing with families, masks are still required, but I'm going to be honest. If the state of Oregon wants to provide me with a security guard to enforce mask wearing, and all the emotional and psychological energy that takes, great. Until then, I cannot even. So to be completely honest, um, I've had a family member with a scary health diagnosis lately. I'm two years into waiting for an international country to reopen so I can bring my child home. Um, As we were in the final process of the adoption in March 2020, when the country closed to travel due to COVID, I personally have a health condition that means significant fatigue, which has been worse lately than usual. I really need to pick my battles, and I just can't put a lot of energy into this. I'm going to be honest. So what I've decided to do, for better or worse, is to tell families the rules that masks are still required, but that I will not refuse service to people who refuse to wear masks for whatever reason, because ethically, I don't feel good um, refusing service to people who won't wear masks. So Sari, I realize I probably shouldn't be saying this, but I feel like as a provider of services, I can protect myself by masking. I can also arrange the environment. I have two HEPA filters running, but I personally can no longer take on the emotional energy of forcing mask wearing in a community that will not adhere to those guidelines. So, um, for the record, I have checked for the health, the rules for healthcare settings. I've read all the criteria, and yes, um, we still need to mask in the clinic, and that is the rule. Um, so again, I can state the rules, uh, but I am not going to refuse service to people who ref- refuse mask wearing, and it's not my individual responsibility to fix a systemic problem like this. And I'm completely acknowledging maybe I'm not doing this the right way, but I'm doing what I can. And I wanted to add that although I completely understand the rules for healthcare settings and why masking is there, and I completely support that, I do think there should be some latitude allowed 
um, for clinics that are not associated with hospitals and where primary care providers aren't working. So I'm disappointed that the guidelines don't account for that. And if schools aren't mask wearing, I don't think clinics should be either. And to repeat myself, it's not about my personal views on mask wearing or not. It's about wanting the rules to be appropriate and um, keeping in mind that the clinical setting is different than a hospital. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It would be helpful if there were, you know, maybe like some metrics around this. I'm no expert on what those metrics should be, but probably things like risk level for patients, community transmission levels, and access to vaccines or COVID screenings. I know they use some metrics like this to help make the determination for schools, and it might be nice to have similar metrics or guidelines for clinic settings too. So I can Mm -hmm. completely imagine why families may feel so confused. Yeah, and they feel confused and sometimes angry and sometimes defensive. And this rule really places the the brunt of that emotion on providers like me who are needing to enforce the rules that are different in different settings truly don't always make sense. And again, it's just me in my clinic room. I don't have a secretary or an intake specialist or at the door reminding people. I refuse to put my physical or honestly emotional health at risk by forcing mask wearing And yes, some people may want to criticize me for it or say I'm doing the wrong thing, but I'm going to wear a mask. I'm not going to force anyone else to, especially when rates are as low as they are now. We have like 10 cases per day in the entire county as we're recording this. This is just not worth it to me. I only have so much bandwidth. I have a lot of personal and health stuff going on. So that said, if rates increase, I will absolutely relook at my stance. So that's enough about that. I know masking feels very personal, and this is a really um, emotional topic for a lot of people who have strong opinions about it. So living in a place where people don't want to wear masks and won't wear a mask, I can only do what I can, and I have to let go of the rest. So let's move on from that and jumping from one big topic to another. Let's get into our conversation of the day, which is about AAC. So I wanted to talk about the education practice gap when it comes to AAC, the barriers in learning more about AAC. And I've talked a bit about my own shift uh, to learn more about this topic on the podcast. I've taken a lot of AAC courses. I've even gone to conferences, but I still feel frustrated on a couple accounts with the AAC education out here. So here's what I'm noticing, and I'm going to share four problems with AAC education. So the reason I'm doing this, which is really important, is I felt a lot of AAC overwhelm. We have a previous topic about that and a lot of personal guilt about the fact that I was learning everything I could and still had so many questions about implementation of AAC education. So I'm sharing this so that you know another SLP might not have this intense sense of like guilt and frantic energy that I had. So problem number one, A lot of AAC uh, education is all talk and no action. So I know the concepts, but what does this look like in practice? And that's just not discussed. I love that AAC has all kinds of acronyms and ideas about language learning from SNUG to Project Impact, but these theories mean very little if I can't see them in action. For example, say someone is talking about SNUG, which stands for Spontaneous Novel Utterance Generation what, what does that look like? What sorts of activities might you do? What kind of prompting? Uh, what, what does this actually look like in therapy? And is it doable? So for example, okay, let's make slime and try to get some snug utterances, right? Um, you could follow a visual recipe. Then I'm going to model some co- core words, like maybe in. 
but what if those aren't concrete enough for the learner or the learner learns loses interest. Not only is there so much to know, but there are all these theories and they might say, hey, do snug. I make slime. Like I've heard that. Um, but it seems impossible to actually implement all of them. And um, the courses I take and I'm paying for uh, to learn more are often 99% theory and teaching and 1% application or none. Um, with like therapy sessions or videos, I need more of this. And I find it frustrating. The more courses I took, the more I got the same acronyms and ideas over and over again, all theory with very little practice or application. We need more videos of therapy in action. Um, with our AAC learners, there's a huge variability in access method, language understanding and use their interests. So how can I get better at my own speech therapy sessions if I just have a bunch of acronyms and theories floating around in my head that I can't possibly practice all at once, at least in my current learning level, which is a which is non-expert level in AAC. <laughs> yeah, I would say this has been my experience too. Uh, you know, many of my SLP colleagues didn't even have an AAC course in grad school. I did, but like you said, there was a gap between learning the theories and the terminology behind AAC services and their practical application. Like, I remember learning about potential barriers, for example, that could prevent a client from accessing using AAC. And, and you know, in class, we listed out and took notes on all the different types of barriers, things like policy barriers, access, participation, and practice barriers. And we defined all of those different terms, but we never really got into a discussion of some practical ways to troubleshoot or get around those barriers. Some specific examples would have been so helpful. <laughs> yeah. It felt like we were taught to identify the barriers. Ah, oh, I know what my problem is. It's an access barrier, but not how to address them. What else have you noticed, Sarah? Yeah. And really quickly, if you're an SLP and you're listening in and you're like, ah, oh, that's what I felt too. Just know you're not alone. That's why we're sharing these. So uh, number two is the education is very school age specific. So a lot of what I'm learning assumes a student already has a language system in place that they understand cause and effect and some language concepts. And most of my students are actually preschool age and emerging communicators. So they may be communicating by leading me to items to show me, pushing things off the table if they don't want them or throwing items they don't want. They may cry for a variety of pragmatic purposes. But at this level of just trying to get a child's attention and model that, yes, if you point here, I know exactly what you mean and something good happens. That's where I find myself in my day-to-day -day therapy. So one of the areas where I really want to draw attention to this is core versus fringe. So we should be doing both, but many of our learners are motivated for their initial utterances by things they love, like people, items, places, and objects, which is going to be their personal fringe. If I start with core, it can sometimes still be effective. Uh, but I really see these kids light up and be motivated if I start with their personal fringe so that the student can understand that this thing I'm touching means something. So while we hear teach core, teach core, teach core, core is best, I'm wondering if that advice is maybe more appropriate for a child who already has a few words at least and is building on their language for two word utterances. 
and not for these first highly motivating first words. So in summary, I feel like there's a lot of advice that is targeted at school age, kid who already has a device, who is already using it, and I'll try out what is recommended. And trying to do that has actually slowed down progress for some of my kids. Um, AAC users are a diverse group of language levels and abilities, and I'd like to see more discussion of that nuance. Uh, I am seeing discussion of younger uh, AAC users with people like Tana, who spoke on episode 112 and 113, and a solo episode of what I'm implementing with success or not in episode 114, if you want more on younger learners and AAC. So what I'm really seeing here is a lot of AAC specialists work in the schools, and often kids aren't getting much access to AAC before kindergarten, which is a shame. So I'm not seeing a ton about preschool AAC, but I'm finding some sources. And I would like to see more about working with emerging communicators. I'd like to see more preschool SLPs talking about preschool AAC in action, what that realistically looks like including a discussion of the specific challenges of presenting AAC to families for the first time ever and working with the shortened attention spans of younger learners and more. Number three, here's another barrier, is finding access for every student to robust AAC, dealing with barriers like price and the city-to-country gap. So let's talk more about that. So there's this idea that Every child should have access to a robust system, which is maybe a high-tech AAC device. And I very much feel this pressure as time goes on. And the thing is, especially if we work with preschool-age kids, it's very possible that most of our caseload doesn't have access to a robust communication system and should. Yet the time involved for an AAC eval and trials and the price for high-tech devices and the learning curve can be too much for some families and for some kids, at least in my own trials, Some kids aren't doing significantly better with voice output versus a robust communication book with access to hundreds of words. So I just don't know. I feel like this idea that everyone on our caseload needs a way to communicate, and that's a basic right, is absolutely true. I think that it's uh, also true that for many of us, the reality of the size of our caseloads and the needs of the kids we see, our best bet might be to implement a universal system, so same system, systems first approach with a robust low-tech book to get started, having some large core boards accessible, and continuing to reintroduce high-tech AAC as you can, um, as you have access to it, at least in my situation, is my best bet for now at this time with my current caseload. So That's a lot, but the summary is the realities of the workplace um, is that for some of us, we cannot pass out a high-tech communication device to all of our learners. Um, For example, we are in a small town. It's really hard to find AAC resources. Um, So I can't do this all by tomorrow by snapping my fingers. I don't have a lot of resources. This can be a long process. And I really prefer this uh, systems first AAC model where we have a universal system, implement it with fidelity, and from there make individual plans for students. With your earlier point about most courses available for CEUs being more school age focus, I would also add that most are elementary age focus. So I worked with secondary level students who use different AAC systems for the past four years, and I had a really hard time finding good information and ideas for my older students who were all over the board with their skill levels, but all still were very much teenagers. 
So I found it hard sometimes to attend courses using activity examples and ideas that I knew my middle and high school students would not be the least bit interested in. <laughs> and, and to your second point, in an ideal world, we would pass out high-tech speech-generating devices and apps like a dentist gives out toothbrushes. But that's just not possible. The bottom line is we want to give students a functional way to communicate, and we want to do it as soon as possible. Absolutely. And the final challenge, um, number four, is the lack of mentorship. So we need to say, see AAC in action and to have access to mentors that can model for us realistic ways to implement AAC with our entire caseload and then to help us problem solve on a case-by-case -case basis um, and to look at a student's progress. So I won't belabor the point since I talked about this um, a few minutes ago, but in order for us to start where we are and gain new skills in AAC assessment and treatment, we may need an experienced SLP AAC mentor to guide us. There are places online where you can search for an AAC mentor like Accessible, it's spelled AAC um, accessible online, but uh, we still need more opportunities from our workplace, like our workplaces should be offering paid opportunities for mentorship if they can, because uh, this is a part of our job. Training enough isn't, it's just not enough. So because as mentioned earlier, if we are only trained in AAC, that doesn't mean we can implement it. We need mentorship I, I need to see assessment and intervention in action, and a great way to do that is to be able to share videos of sessions that I do and get feedback on them with permission, of course, with a mentor who can really be several steps ahead of me and give me feedback about where to go next and someone I can ask questions to. Yeah, access to a mentor online or in person is needed. Even a professional learning community of SLPs where you can collaborate and problem solve together in the best interest of a client would be really helpful. Then if you don't have access to an expert, at least you have access to a community of co-professionals who can provide insight from their knowledge and experiences with AAC to bring to the table. And one final thought to add as we wrap up talking about AAC challenges is to join into the conversation around Gestalt language learners and AAC. The challenge here is that AAC systems are, for the most part, well, pretty much all, <laughs> programmed analytically or one word at a time. They don't account for children who are Gestalt language learners. And these children, they learn chunks of words together at a time. If you want more information on Gestalt language learning, check out episode 99 of this podcast when Sarah interviews Alexandria Zakos of Meaningful Speech on this exact topic. So for non-speaking clients, it may be difficult to know wh whether or not they are Gestalt language learners, but we can guess that many autistic clients process and learn language in Gestalts. This is important to consider when we are programming a device, but there is no clear guidance or answers available at this moment on the best approach for that right now. So based on Sarah and my own personal experience, it seems that most kids that we've encountered do well being exposed to both types of language learning. And with this in mind, setting up access to both Gestalt and analytic language can be beneficial. And really, we want their device to grow with them. So as clients work through the phases of Gestalt language development, and if you want more information again on those phases, check out episode 99. Eventually, we will want them to have that access to an analytic system. 
Most high-tech systems allow you to program in specific gestalts for your client. You can program in gestalts they already use and then gradually mitigate or slightly modify or mix and match their gestalts when they're ready for that next stage. And if you have a non-speaking client who you suspect may be a gestalt language learner, programming in some gestalts for things that they already are trying to say would be a good place to start. Um, And you can get this information from their parents or from your own observations, but things that automatically come to my mind are things like, I'm hungry, I need help, open it, you know, gestalt phrases that help them meet their daily needs that they're probably already trying to say at home. And the first step of just acknowledging that gestalt has been the best thing I can do for my learners when I repeat it back when I can, or if I can't understand, I acknowledge it with a head nod saying, "Mm mm-hmm, okay, or yes. Kids, kids feel heard. And I just see it's like they light up. They're saying, you get me, you're responding to my communication bid instead of ignoring it. I haven't yet needed to program a gestalt into a device, but I think that's a great idea. And before we leave you today, we really love to read and we know many of you do too. So we wanted to each offer a few book recommendations. So what have you read lately, Sari? Well, uh, in the last episode we recorded together, I shared that I recently finished reading a sci-fi book by Andy Weir called Project Hail Mary. Uh, That was the one about a middle school teacher turned astronaut on a mission to save the planet. I don't want to say more because I think that would give away too many juicy details on that one. I'll just say it was really fun and the author really does his research for his novels, which makes his books that much more believable, thought-provoking, and fun. Also, his writing is quite witty and I found myself laughing out loud several times throughout the book. After that book, I've been reading parenting books, um, and I've been reading them to help our family get ready for baby number two, who will be arriving soon. And I've been reading two books by Sarah Ockwell Smith. The first book is called The Second Baby Book, How to Cope with Pregnancy Number Two and Create a Happy Home for Your Firstborn and New Arrival. And the second book that I'm reading by this author is a potty training book also by her called Ready, Set, Go, a gentle parenting guide to calmer, quicker potty training. (laughs) So my toddler has started to show signs of being ready to potty train. So we're trying to jump on the opportunity to get him trained before baby number two arrives. And uh, the book has been helpful. And so far, the second baby book um, has been great, especially with its advice for how parents can prepare their firstborn for the new baby. So I would definitely recommend it. And I will have to let you know how the potty training one goes in the long run. We're running out of time to get that done. (laughs) And there really, there seems to be a lot of different potty training approaches. And uh, so far, this one seems to match with our personal family needs. Um, And I know that I'm reading kind of specific niche books right now, but that's that's what's going on. What are you reading these days, Sarah? Not books on parenting or potty training. So I've just been looking. Honestly, this has been a stressful period of my life. So I've been looking for anything cozy. So I'm going to share some cozy reads. So the first one is called Mr. Darcy's Diary by Amanda Grange. It's a retelling of Pride and Prejudice from Mr. Darcy's perspective, and it's intelligent, witty, and sweet. So if you're looking for a cozy, calm read, I highly recommend it, especially if you like Jane Austen. Pride and Prejudice is my favorite Jane Austen book. 
Another recommendation is the first in a cozy mystery series called Murder in an Irish Village by Charlene O'Connor. Cozy mysteries are a genre I enjoy. Uh, The murder happens early on. There's no gore. The heroine typically solves the murder. And um, again, the books don't have blood or gore or usually sex. So they're pretty PG rated. They typically have a love interest or two. And they're just fun reads. So in some heavier nonfiction reading, I just finished The Grieving Brain by Mary Frances O'Connor, PhD, a grief expert and neuroscientist. I've read a lot of books on grief over the last few years as I'm trying to support my own emotional health and work through my own feelings of sadness, powerlessness, and loss. And Dr. O'Connor just gets it right. I heartily recommend this book. I also just finished another fiction book called The Lost Apothecary by Sarah Penner. This book goes back and forth from present day to 1700s England, specifically um, following Nella, who runs a hidden apothecary shop dispensing poisons she gives to women to rid themselves of the men in their lives. The book was surprising, engaging, and thoughtful. I'd heard about it for a long, long time before reading it, so chances are you've heard of it too. So give it a try. And Sari, I think you'd love it. I also started an audiobook um, version of Wildwood by Colin Malloy. Uh, I actually had to return to the library before I finished, so I have to put a hold on it again. Um, the audiobook is from my library and the Libby app, so maybe you have access to it too. The narrator is fantastic. And Wildwood is this fantastical story that takes place outside Portland, my hometown. When two children enter the Wildwoods and encounter talking animals, groups at opposition with each other, and a world they'd never imagined. I'm totally looking for cozy and escapist fiction at the moment, and this one fits the bill. And so far, I'd recommend it highly. And it's the first in a series of three if you'd like to read further. All of those sound great. And I'm really interested in both The Lost Apothecary and the first book you shared, Mr. Darcy's Diary. Sarah and I both love Jane Austen stories, and this one sounds like a really fun new perspective to read through. I will say that Captain Wentworth has always been my favorite love interest from Persuasion. And there's a new series coming out on Netflix I just heard about for Persuasion. So I'm really looking forward to that side note. Um, But Mr. Darcy is a close second. And so I will definitely be checking out that one. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Today, we shared updates on Oregon's masking guidelines for school and healthcare settings. We discussed some of the challenges with practical AAC implementation We shared our thoughts on using AAC systems with Gestalt language learners and ended by sharing an update on the books we've recently been reading. This podcast is recorded on the ancestral land of the Tekelma and Cow Creek tribes. We hope that this episode has been a little slice of an SLP happy hour for you. Thank you for listening. Until next time.